Good morning. So good to see all of you. Thank you so much for the invitation, Will. It's always a blessing to be with a, a dear group of friends that I don't see very often. Uh, I, I recognize a lot of you. I think I've met many of you along the way, um, but I see some new faces as well. So as Will said, my name is Lucas. Uh, I'm a pastor at Rogue Valley Community Church, which is in Rogue River. And you should know that uh, we're actually in the process of changing our name. So we will be Creekside Bible Church very soon. So if you hear about a Creekside Church in Rogue River that is reformed, that's us, okay? And uh, we're doing that mainly just because there are so many other rogue and valley and community churches in the area that we get confused with. So it's just for clarity so people know where we're at. Uh, My family is with me today. Beautiful wife, Allison, is there in the back. And we have five kids, uh, Anna, Benjamin, Owen, Grace, and Abraham. It's five, right? I always ask my wife, there's only five of them, correct? But she's actually pregnant, so there's one on the way. Uh, He's due on May the 4th, Star Wars Day, so I'm really excited about that. He'll be our own little baby Yoda. Um, (laughs) And I'd love to interact with you after the service if you have the time, but right now we're going to focus our attention on 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, so if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 John 4, and I'd like to uh, preach today a sermon from verses 13 through 21 entitled, The Benefits of Abiding. The Benefits of Abiding. Let's pray, and then we will read this passage and dive in. Well, Father, we do pray and ask this morning for your help as we study your word together. I pray that you would be honored and glorified in our midst. I pray that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be exalted and proclaimed. I pray that your spirit would guide and direct us. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth. May your word go forth with power today. May it not return void May it accomplish your purpose, and may it bear forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to read verses 13 to 21, so please follow along, if you would, as I read out loud. 1 John chapter 4, beginning verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother also. Well, today I want to talk to you about the benefits that come from abiding in God. The word abide, you may have noticed, used both in the singular and plural, shows up several times in this passage. Those of you who have been Christians for quite a while are probably familiar with the word abide. It's one of those good Bible words that uh, appears frequently in Scripture. However, it's, it's a word that, that most of us rarely, if ever, use in everyday conversation. Abide, one writer explains, is found 82 times in the King James Version of the Bible and very seldom in our daily language. When we speak of abiding, it is usually in some legalistic sense, a law-abiding citizen or one who abides by the rules. In John's discourse, however, the word means so much more than towing the line. The Greek translates it as to continue, to, to stay in a relationship, to remain, to be consistent or committed. When we abide in Christ, we remain consistent in our relationship with him. We believe his truth, we obey his spirit, and we stay steadfast in our love for him and for his children. So you can, you can think of the word abide as a synonym of loyal. A loyal soldier remains committed to his company and commander. A loyal dog stays near his master and won't run far away from him. A loyal spouse remains faithful to his or her marriage and marital vows. A loyal friend stays tried and true through thick and thin, and a loyal Christian, according to the New Testament, remains committed to God over the course of the long haul. True believers are marked by loyalty. Just how we're marked by love, as 1 John 4, 7 says, so also we are indeed should be marked by loyalty. Love and loyalty actually go hand in hand. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, as we heard, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love, or remain loyal to my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus doesn't want his followers to step outside of the umbrella of his love. Because he knows what storms we will encounter, what dangers we will face. He knows how dangerous it is to stray from the fold. Just how a lost sheep is vulnerable to predators and wolves when it runs away from the flock and from the oversight of its shepherd. So we put ourselves in danger when we stray from the Lord and his people. Or just how a broken branch is destined to die when it's removed from the vine, the source of life. So we two friends bring great harm upon ourselves when we detach ourselves from Jesus and his sanctifying word. Pressing home this point, another author writes, in World War I, much of the fighting took place along what is known as the Western Front. Large systems of trenches ran from the North Sea to the border of Switzerland. Between the trenches was a section of land known as no man's land. Often, the key to survival was remaining in the trenches. 
Lifting your head out of curiosity would run the risk of getting hit with a bullet. The reason a soldier needed to remain in the trench was because there was an enemy who was out to destroy them, no matter how quiet the enemy got, no matter how safe it may have seemed. To get out from the secure position of abiding in the trench was to risk destruction by the enemy. Well, in a similar way, friends, when we fail to abide in the Lord, to remain committed to him, to remain loyal to his love, we run the risk of getting attacked by the evil one and the temptations of this world. You see, as Christians, we are, like soldiers in World War I, engaged in a battle. We are in trench warfare with the forces of darkness, as it were. Therefore, we cannot afford to let our guard down or to abandon our post. We cannot afford to leave the trench, to leave the God we love. We must remain in him if we are to survive and thrive as believers. If abandoning God leads to cursing, then abiding in him leads to blessing. And we could talk for a long time this morning about all the problems that can arise from abandoning the Lord. Jesus talks about many of them in John 15. But what I want to do instead is to talk to you about all the blessings that come from abiding in God. And they are outlined here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. So, so rather than address the topic of abiding from a negative angle, I want to address it from a positive angle. What then are the blessings that come from abiding in the triune God? That's, that's the question on the table, the question I want to consider just for a little bit this morning. What are the blessings that come from abiding in the triune God? Here they are in summary. When we abide in God, we experience the blessing of God's presence, the blessing of God's peace, and the blessing of God's power. Let's break these answers down into bite-sized chunks and consider them in detail one at a time just for a little bit. What are the blessings that come from abiding in God? First of all, according to verses 13 through 16, when we abide in God, we experience the blessing of God's presence. When we abide in God, we experience the blessing of God's presence. These verses tell us that as we abide in God, we can be confident that God the Holy Spirit is in us, God the Son died for us, and God the Father is with us. Take a look again at verse 13, and you'll see how plain it is, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is in us. By this we know, John says, that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, someone has rightly said, is the resident member of the Trinity. He's the one who lives in the heart of every true believer. Jesus told his disciples, remember, that just as the Spirit of God was with them throughout their lives and ministry, so he would also be in them after Jesus rose again and ascended back to the Father, John 14, verse 17. And Acts chapter 2 records how that came to be. On the day of Pentecost, remember that that the Spirit of God came and and filled the new temple, the church, with his presence. Ever since then, he's lived in the hearts and minds of his people. In fact, one of the clearest signs that a person is truly born again and knows God is the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. Romans 8, verses 9 and 10 says clearly that we who believe in Jesus are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in us, 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. To be a Christian is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. It's to have the Spirit of God living inside of you, controlling you, and empowering you for service. That's true as an objective reality, simply because we belong to God. But it's also true, subjectively speaking, that as we abide in God and consciously choose to remain in the trench of the Christian life, the Holy Spirit remains in us, actively at work in our hearts. And we can experience more and more of his presence as we align ourselves with him and his will. To be sure, the Holy Spirit of God will never leave us or forsake us, but we can become desensitized to his presence, so to speak, if we fail to keep in step with him. So our assurance as believers, friends, our sense of God's nearness and closeness depends upon our loyalty. As we love God and others and choose to remain loyal to God by his grace and for his glory, we will know for sure that that God the Holy Spirit is in us. On top of this, according to verses 14 and 15, we will also know for certain that God the Son died for us. Look at what these verses say again, verses 14 and 15. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. True believers, by definition, not only are possessed by the Holy Spirit of God, but they also trust in the Son of God and his work. Jesus came into this world to save sinners, as 1 Timothy 1.15 says, and all who believe in him are saved. We who believe in him are saved. And part of what it means to believe is to confess the truth about Jesus Christ. Many in John's day, you may remember, had been denying the truth about Jesus Christ. They denied that he had come from God and had come in the flesh. So John in response, urged his readers to loudly and openly confess what they knew to be true about Jesus and his redeeming work. Jesus had come. He was sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. He truly was manifested in the flesh, and he really and truly did die on the cross for the sins of his people. All who believe and confess those truths about Jesus are saved. As Romans 9, excuse me, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will what? Be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Christianity at its core is a confessional religion. We don't just believe certain things, we confess them to be true as well. And as we confess that Jesus is the Son of God who died for us, John says we can be certain that God abides in us and we abide in God. When we abide in God, we know that the Holy Spirit is in us and the Son of God is for us. We can also know, verse 16 says, that God the Father is with us. Verse 16 says we have come to know and I believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. To have God in you is also to have God with you wherever we go. 
And God remains with us, friends, when and as we choose to abide in him. Note that John says that God is love. Not that he was love or he will be love, but he is love. God is the the great I am, remember the eternal present tense, and he abides with all who remain in his love. He will never leave us or forsake us, as I said. He will never walk away from us or cast us from his presence. He, He always remains and forever is committed to us. He's in our corner, in our midst. Therefore, we should never walk away from him. We should never walk away from him. We should remain in his love, as Jude 20 and 21 exhorts us, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Did you hear how all three persons of the Trinity are referenced in those verses? They mimic this section of 1 John. God calls upon us to abide in him, the, the triune God, he who is one and three. And as we do that, we will come to know and believe that God the Holy Spirit is in us, God the Son died for us, and God the Father is with us, which is just another way of saying that we will experience God's presence in our lives. When we abide in God, friends, we will know for certain that God abides in us. You know, it's hard to get our minds around this amazing truth, but perhaps an analogy will help. Uh, This one comes from a guy named Adrian Warnock. Listen to what he says. Abide is an old-fashioned word. It simply means remain, stay, or dwell. The challenge is for us to continue to be immersed in, satisfied by, surrounded by, empowered by, protected by, and infused with Jesus. Piper calls it the lifelong extension of encountering Jesus. If you want to understand what this means, he says, write the word Christ on a piece of paper. Then put the paper in an envelope and write your name on that envelope. Then put that envelope inside another envelope that is also marked Christ. Then put that envelope in another envelope labeled God. Christ enveloping us inside us and us inside him. Except, and this will blow your brains, we would need another envelope and to put God inside Christ. Talk about a divine sandwich. The image is infused with Christ and and God such that we are surrounded, enveloped, and filled with him. This is a fact for all Christians, but Jesus urges us to live in that fact and to become more and more aware of it. Christ in us, us in Christ, Christ in God, God in Christ. What a glorious truth. It really is, isn't it? It's a comforting truth, friends, that's designed to warm your heart. You see, it's one thing to know that God is with us. It's another thing to know that he is for us in Christ. And it's altogether mind-boggling to realize that he's in us by his spirit day and night. This is not to suggest that we are God or that we become little gods. It's also not to imply that the creator Creature distinction is done away with. God is and always remains utterly, 
distinct from his creation, and he always will be. He is transcendent, above us, different from us, unique, one of a kind, in a word, holy. And yet, at the same time, he is mysteriously imminent with us, for us, and in us by his spirit. He abides with us as we abide with him. That's the first blessing that comes from abiding in God. When we abide in God, we experience the blessing of his presence in our lives. Friends, let this, let this encourage you on days when you feel isolated or lonely. Let it encourage you when you feel outnumbered or on the extreme minority. Let it encourage you when you feel as though no one can relate to you or, or understand your particular situation. The fact is, friends, you are never alone in this world. God loves you and is for you. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, and he has given you his spirit to encourage you, comfort you, strengthen you through the good times and the bad. There's no place you can go, friends, where God is not. He envelops you like an envelope. (laughs) And if you are in him, no one and nothing can touch you. We've covered the first blessing that comes from abiding in the triune God. When we abide in God, we experience the blessing of his presence. Second, second, here's now the second blessing. When we abide in God, we also experience the blessing of his peace. When we abide in God, we also experience the blessing of his peace. Verses 17 and 18 say, by this, Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, we also are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. When we abide in God and his love abides in us, John says, we no longer have to be afraid that God might be angry with us. We can know for certain that he is pleased with us. Now, to be certain, there was a time in our lives when God was angry with us. Before coming to know Christ, before we became Christians, we were at war with God and he was at war with us. Romans 5 says that the unregenerate are at enmity with God. But after we were brought from death to life and cleansed of our sins, the Bible says that hostility ceased and the war came to an end. One of the most comforting passages in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. What good news this is. Whereas before God was angry with us because of our sin, now he is at peace with us because of our Savior. Friends, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Think about, just think about how wonderful it is to know that God is at peace with you. That the God of the universe is pleased with you. When we believe and understand this reality, friends, we can truly say it is well with my soul. You know, in the ancient world, hardly anyone could utter those words. Most people believe that 
the gods, whatever or whoever they were, were angry with them. This is starkly illustrated by an ancient pagan prayer that was written sometime around 668 B.C., and it's entitled, A Prayer to Every God. Listen, the prayer goes like this. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May my God and goddess be quieted toward me. May the God who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. May the goddess who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. My transgressions are many. Great are my sins. The transgression I have committed, indeed, I do not know. The sin which I have done, indeed, I do not know. The forbidden thing which I have eaten, indeed, I do not know. The God and the rage of his heart confronted me. Why? I do not know. Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I am troubled. I am overwhelmed. I cannot see. How long, O my goddess, whom I know or do not know, will you be angry with me? Reflecting on this prayer, Old Testament scholar Daniel Block comments, this piece gives the modern reader a remarkable window into the religious psyche of the ancient pagans. The worshiper expresses certainty of three facts. The gods are angry with them, his sin has caused this anger, and he must do something to placate their wrath. But his ignorance is also threefold. He does not know which god is angry, He does not know what crime has provoked the God's fury, and he does not know what it will take to placate the God's wrath. What a depressing situation, right? Just imagine being a pagan in the ancient world, constantly looking over your shoulder, constantly worried about whether or not the gods or goddesses were angry with you. You would live in fear. And in fact, many of the ancient peoples did live in fear. And you know what? Sadly, friends, many people in our world today still live in fear. They may hold to a different worldview or religious perspective than the ancient pagans did. They may not be as superstitious as the ancient peoples were, but they are still afraid of whatever or whoever may be up in the heavens looking down upon them. I've met Muslims who feared incurring the wrath of Allah, and they didn't quite know what to do about it. In Islam, you see, there's no mediator or savior like there is in Christianity. Muslims reject the idea that Jesus is God's son. In their minds, Allah has no son. And Allah is not love like the God of the Bible is. So when they transgress Allah's commands, the best The best that they can hope for is to somehow earn his favor or work their way into his good graces if they're lucky. There's no assurance in Islam, but there's a whole lot of fear. There's a lot of fear in other religions too. Honestly, friends, any religion based upon works or merit is going to generate fear because people will constantly be left wondering if they've they've done enough or if their works measure up to the standard or if their good works will outweigh their bad deeds in the end. 
Even many atheists and agnostics today live in a constant state of fear. They fear the unknowns, the, the anomalies that they can't control, the, unforeign, the unseen forces of nature. That's why, you know, that's why global warming is such a big deal to them. Because this world is all they have. And they have no control over their fate or destiny. Listen, friends, only, only biblical Christianity, I would argue, offers the true solution to our fears, whatever they may be. For it tells us the good news, the gospel that God and Christ has made a way for us to be accepted and forgiven and justified and is not based upon our performance but upon Jesus' perfect work and righteousness. God's perfect love displayed in Christ, seen in the gospel, witnessed at the cross, has driven out our fear. For we know, friends, that just as Jesus is, so also we now are in the world. What's true of Jesus? What's true of the Lord Jesus? Well, we know he's perfectly righteous, right? Loved by God and eternally favored. And you know what? Because of him, we now are too. It's incredible. This is the good news. Jesus is righteous and in him, we stand righteous before God, clothed in his righteousness. Jesus is is loved by God, and in him, we too are loved by God for all eternity. Jesus is also highly favored by God, and in him, we are highly favored by God as well. As Jesus is, so are we now in this world. Jesus died on the cross to take away our judgment He rose again so that we could forever bear his righteousness and he lives now to make intercession for us, our advocate before the Father. And because of what he has done for us, friends, we can now say, it is well, it is well with our souls. God in heaven is pleased with us. Our long war with him has come to an end. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we abide in God, the triune God, we will continue to experience his perfect peace. You will experience peace whenever you're afraid because you'll remember that God hasn't given to us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. You will experience God's peace when you're tempted to doubt God's love for you. You will remember that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Not that everything's going well. Not that we're rich. Not that we're healthy. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You will experience God's perfect peace when you're tempted to be anxious or worried about your life, worried about the status of your salvation or or what will happen when you die. You will remember the words of Philippians 4, 7 that assures us that as we push anxious thoughts from our minds and choose to lay our burdens at God's feet, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in fear. As we abide in God and remain in the the trench of his love, so to speak, we can and will experience perfect peace, the peace of God at work in our hearts. Well, we've looked at two answers to the question, 
two answers to the question, what are the blessings that come from abiding in the triune God? First, we experience the blessing of God's presence. Second, we experience the blessing of God's peace. Third, third, there's one final answer to consider, and it's revealed in verses 19 to 21. When we abide in God, we also experience the blessing of his power. When we abide in God, we also experience the blessing of his power. Specifically, we are granted the power to love, to love God and love his people. Verse 19 says, we love, or some versions say we love him because he first loved us. Now, there's a lot I could say about this verse. It teaches us about God's sovereignty in salvation, yes, certainly. It teaches us about the priority of of God's initiative. It teaches us about the nature of saving faith and its connection to love. But the main thing I want to show you from this verse is that it tells us that our ability to love, that is our ability to, to love God and his people, stems from the fact that God loved us first. Put another way, God is the source of our love. We wouldn't be able to love him or his people apart from his divine enablement. God's love, which led him to choose us before the foundation of the world, to send Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for our sins and to change our hearts by the power of his spirit is the cause of our love. We never, friends, we never would have come to know God or love him if he hadn't chosen to love us first. His love is the foundation and fountain of our love for him. It's also the the wellspring of our love for other believers. Look again at what verses 20 and 21 say. Verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Here we're told that if we truly know and love God, we will love his people, the men and women who've been saved by his grace. Verse 20 puts it as an indicative. If we believe we, we will love God's people, and verse 21 states it as an imperative. Those who believe should love God's people. Both verses, though, note carefully, are founded on the principle of verse 19. The ultimate reason why we do love the brothers and should love them is because God loved us first. You see the flow of thought? God's preemptive love, then, not only motivates us to love, it enables us or empowers us to love. And what this means practically for us today, friends, is that we can love people as God has called us to. You realize that? We actually have the ability to love as God calls us to. God's commandments are no longer burdensome to us. That's why someone has rightly said that for believers, God's commandments are his enablements. We have the power of love at work in our hearts enabling us to obey, helping us to love as we should. As we abide in God and bask in his love for us, we can carry out his commandments. Not perfectly, of course. 
at least not this side of heaven. One day we, we will obey God perfectly, but for now we can only obey him imperfectly. Yet our obedience is real and, and substantial nonetheless, and it's pleasing to God when it springs from true faith and a pure and holy love. So we should pursue it. We should pursue it. We should seek to obey God, relying upon his grace and enablement to help us. His love has cast fear out of our hearts, and it's the source and ground of our love for him. Because he loves us and loved us first, we should love him. And we should also love the men and women he's saved and welcomed into his forever family. You know, I know that's not easy to do. As Ray Stedman says, loving people is about the most difficult thing that some of us do. We can be patient with people and even just and charitable, but how are we supposed to conjure up in our hearts that warm, effervescent sentiment of goodwill which the New Testament calls love? Some people are so miserably, well, unlovable. That odorous person with a nasty cough who sat next to you in the train, shoving his newspaper into your face. Those crude louts in the neighborhood with the barking dog. That smooth liar who took you in so completely last week. By what magic are you supposed to feel toward these people anything but revulsion, distrust, and resentment, and justified desire to have nothing to do with them? It's a good question, isn't it? How is it possible, friends, for us to love when we don't feel like it? Or to love those we deem to be unlovable? <clears throat> a man named John Perkins once wrestled with this question. According to one source, Perkins was born in Mississippi in 1930 the child of poor sharecroppers. His mother died of complications arising from starvation when he was an infant, and his father abandoned the family. Raised by his extended family, John was 17 when his older brother, a decorated World War II veteran, was fatally shot and died in his arms. Filled with grief and rage, John left Mississippi for California, where he married, had children, and became a Christian. In 1960, John felt the Lord calling him to return to racially torn Mississippi to preach the gospel. So he moved his family to Mendenhall, Mississippi, a neighboring town to the one he was raised in. There, he established the Voice of Calvary Bible Institute. In February 1970, Perkins and two associates went to the local jail to post bail for a group of black college students. He and his associates were surrounded by police officers and arrested. And Perkins was severely beaten and tortured simply for being a black leader in the community. The students and his associates feared Perkins might die as he lay unconscious on the floor of the jail cell. Somehow, though, through his own pain, John Perkins realized the white people in his community needed the gospel just as much as those in the black community. He understood that, that many of the law enforcement officers' hatred of him was based upon prejudice and ignorance, and the acts of racism and hatred were all these angry men knew. Perkins vowed that if God would deliver him out of that situation, he would keep doing good by preaching a gospel that would heal 
the whole community. Two doctors, one white, one black, oversaw the healing of his physical wounds. At the same time, God healed his soul, revealing more and more about how the gospel was the only thing that freed people from evil and hatred, regardless of their skin color. John realized that Christ had suffered unjustly at the hands of hateful people, yet he still prayed that God would forgive them. In time, God gave John Perkins the ability to forgive his attackers, to truly love them, and he committed himself to overcoming the terrible evil done to him with good. Despite the hatred and ill treatment John Perkins experienced, he was able to forgive and love his persecutors. How? How? Because he was changed, friends, by the love of God. The perfect love of God not only cast fear out of his heart, it also cast hatred out of his heart as well. Because he knew and understood that he had been loved by God, he was enabled to love others. And I'll tell you this, friends. If God can enable a man like John Perkins to love his enemies, even after all that he went through, then surely, surely, he can give you and me the ability to love other believers. Amen? Because God has loved us, we can love others. It's not just that we should love others, though that's true. It's that we can love them. We have the Holy Spirit, friends, the Holy Spirit of God living in our hearts. And with his help and enablement, we can do the impossible. So the next time you're feeling powerless to love, remember what God has given to you in Jesus Christ. Remember the love that he has shown to you in the gospel. Second Peter 1 verse 3 says that his divine power has granted to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. God's love is powerful, friends, and it has powerfully changed us. And when and as we abide in God's love, we will experience more and more and more of his power at work in our lives. So my exhortation to you, is to stay in love with the Lord this year. Stay in love with the Lord. Remain committed to him. Continue to follow Christ. Remain in the trench of Christian discipleship. Don't ever leave the place of safety, the place of refuge. It's dangerous to walk away from the Lord. But it's a true blessing to stay close to him. When we stay close to him, when we abide in God, what benefits come our way? Here now is the conclusion of the matter. First, we receive the benefit of experiencing God's presence. We are assured that the Spirit of God is in us, Jesus died for us, God the Father is with us when we abide in the Lord. Second, we also receive the benefit of experiencing God's peace when we abide. God assures us his love, assures us of his love, and he casts fear out of, his, out of our hearts. And finally, we also receive the benefit of experiencing God's power when we abide in God. God gives us the ability to love others, especially other believers, as we remain in him. Let's pray now, friends, and 
thank God for the many blessings he's given to us and ask him for grace to help us abide in him. Father, we thank you for this passage. And I pray and ask that you would give us the grace to put it into practice. May we not just be hearers of the word, but may we be doers of it. May we not just be informed, may we be transformed. I pray and ask for this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.